I'd like to say welcome to those who are now joining us via Facebook Live. So welcome to you all. And of course, welcome to all the, those who have joined us this morning. Now, some of you may recognize our guest speaker because he was actually the speaker last Sunday too. So we're getting a double header. So yay for us. The Reverend Dr. J. Carl Gregg is Minister of the Unitarian Universalist Congregation of Frederick, and our own Amanda Poppy has actually been working with their congregation recently as well, so it's been a nice trade. Uh, a native of Florence, South Carolina, Carl holds a Doctor of Ministry and a Diploma in the Art of Spiritual Direction from San Francisco Theological Seminary, a Master of Divinity from Bright Divinity School in Fort Worth, Texas, and a Bachelor of Arts in Religion and Philosophy, cum laude and phi beta kappa, no less, from Furman University, Greenville, South Carolina. So very well-credentialed. Carl is currently in the process of revising his dissertation, which is Practicing Communion in Progressive Free Church Congregations, into a popularized form for publication. He has taught as an adjunct professor at the University of Louisiana at Monroe, and he's also a featured blogger on Pathios. And if you're not familiar, that is a, a, the website of choice for millions of people who are looking for credible and balanced information about religion and spirituality. And so we are very delighted to say welcome back, Carl. Good morning. It's good to be with you again. I'm grateful for this opportunity for a two-week exchange with Amanda, as well as to share the service leadership with, with you, as well as with the DC Labor Chorus. Thank you all so much. I'd like to begin this morning by inviting you to hear a contemporary parable by, called The Fisherman and the Rich Businessman by the philosopher Peter Rollins. A businessman, while returning from lunch, saw this fisherman get up from the side of a river carrying a bucket of fish. Where are you going? said the businessman. Well, I'm going to the market to, to sell these fish. And how long did it take you to catch those? Oh, I don't know, a couple of hours? Well, what are you going to do for the rest of the day if you're already quitting fishing and going to market? Well, I don't know, said the fisherman. I guess I'll sit on the beach with my family and drink some wine and maybe chat to any passersby. But if you keep fishing, said the businessman, you could earn more money. And why would I do that, said the fisherman. Well, said the businessman, you could buy better equipment to catch more, even more fish, and within a few years you'll have enough to buy a really large net, and why eventually you might own a fleet of boats. And then what, said the fisherman. Well, the businessman said, why then you could sit on the beach with your family and drink wine and chat to the passerby. <laughs> Keeping that parable in mind, I invite you to hear a related story from the New York Times magazine titled, Mary Kane is Growing Up Fast. Maybe you know Mary Kane as a runner. You can kind of Google and find out about where her career is going. Uh, when this article was written, she was 18 years old. She's 20 now. Um, she's a promising professional middle-distance runner from New York. In fifth grade, fifth grade, she ran a six-minute, 15-second mile. In ninth grade, she won the New York State 1500-meter championship, breaking the freshman girl's record. 
The summer after her sophomore year, she flew to the Junior World Championship in Barcelona and ran the 1500 in 4 minutes 11 seconds, setting a new American high school record for girls. So why bring up this running prodigy in a platform address about summer and free time? You know, training that hard doesn't sound very relaxing. Well, another significant part of this article is the ways in which Alberto Salazar, a coach training cane, is helping her learn from his mistakes. In 1982, at age 23, Salazar set American records for both the 5,000 and the 10,000 meter races. He also won the Boston Marathon and his third New York Marathon in a row. But the article continues that among Salazar's gifts was that he was especially adept at overriding what an exercise uh, science professor calls the central governor. The part of the brain that tells us that our bodies are nearly out of fuel and are building up toxic levels of byproducts like lactic acid and that it's time to slow down. This, six, this system in our body that they're calling the central governor, it kicks in prophylactically, creating a dire sense of fatigue well before the body will actually fail. Elite athletes, though, excel at ignoring the signals from the central governor and pushing through exhaustion. Salazar sometimes finished races so depleted that he required IV fluids. Once in 1978 at age 19, at the end of the Falmouth um, road race on Cape Cod, he collapsed and his temperature spiked to 107 degrees. A priest was called in to read his last rites. Several years later, still near the beginning of what should have been a really long career, Salazar's body gave out and stopped responding to this progressive overload principle that will just keep incrementally ratcheting up um, without end, basically. Uh, in the 1984 Olympic marathon in L.A., Salazar was the favorite to win. He finished 15th. Through the rest of his 20s and early 30s, he suffered from an endless string of respiratory infections, and he had an unshakable exhaustion. He could barely run at all. Endurance athletes refer to this phenomenon as overtraining syndrome. It's a condition that is well documented but poorly understood. It's a result of too much exercise, too little rest. Salazar's immune and endocrine systems were malfunctioning. He became depressed. Eventually, he recovered enough to train for and win the Camaradas Ultramarathon in South Africa in 1994, but he has never regained his full athletic powers. He has never won a major marathon again. So I'm interested in these parallels between athletic burnout and burnout in other fields where people also push themselves regularly past the point of exhaustion. Some of you may can identify with this. I don't know. You can choose for yourself. Some of you may recall, for instance, the experience of Ariana Huffington, the founder of the online media website Huffington Post, who in her book Thrive described her experience of collapsing from exhaustion. She hit her head on the corner of her desk, cutting her eye uh, and breaking her cheekbone in the process. After extensive medical tests, it turned out the only thing wrong with Ariana Huffington was profound sleep deprivation from working 18 hours a day, seven days a week. That workload was not sustainable for her body long term. 
Here's one final opening story from Irene Glass, who helps facilitate labyrinth walks at the congregation where I serve as minister. If any of you walked a labyrinth, so this isn't a labyrinth like a minotaur at the center, right? Okay, so this is a, it's a pattern on the floor. Some of you may know it from Shark Cathedral. So it's, it's what's called a unicursal pattern. So there's one way in and one way out, and it's a way of doing walking meditation. There's various ways of, of doing it. So Irene shared with me that she had the pleasure recently of presenting a labyrinth workshop and facilitating a walk for this lovely women's group. She said that the members of the group were largely retired, and what she does at the beginning of her labyrinth workshops is to ask people, you know, what do you hope, why did you sign up for this labyrinth intensive? What do you hope to get out of today? So she says this lovely group of elders, these wonderful women who have, for the most you know, raised families, worked whole careers, survived spouses, done the so-called American dream to the best of their ability, and done it quite well in many cases, almost all of them mentioned the exact same thing. They said they were interested in doing labyrinth work because of the meditative aspects, that it felt in some ways easier than doing sitting meditation, that they could at least do moving meditation, because they said... They were retired, but they didn't know how to slow down. I want to invite you to consider that one reason for this phenomenon of not knowing how to slow down, sometimes even in retirement, is that our understanding of the so-called American dream has shifted over time. The Jeffersonian ideals, and we all know asterisk, there's lots of problems with Jefferson, right? Okay. Uh, the Jeffersonian ideals in the Declaration of Independence, that this country should be a land in which all people have an opportunity to seek life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. That has not only been on a somewhat positive trajectory. Now, we also know things about the new Jim Crow and insidious racism and how these things work in twisted ways. But that life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness have not only been on a um, progressive, positive trajectory of expanding equality and opportunities to African Americans, to women, to lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender citizens of this country so that mo more parts of our society have access to the American dream, an expansion that we all know is under serious threat at the moment that you all po powerfully sang about earlier. But also the American dream has been increasingly incorporating nightmarish elements of overwork, of never taking time off, of powering the economy through unceasing consumerism. What did we hear after 9-11? Go shopping, right? So here in the midst of summer, a season traditionally associated with many Americans with a little bit lighter workload, with time with family and friends, I want to invite us to reflect a little bit on How's that working out for you this summer? Uh, you know, maybe it's maybe well, maybe not. And what is our relationship to work, um, which has become perverted in many ways, such that some of us have forgotten how to ever slow down? Keep in mind that opening story of the fisherman who was already content in the present because he felt like his family already had enough. Contrasted with the rich businessman who is saying you should perpetually delay happiness to some unknown future, a future that, to be honest, none of us are guaranteed. I've done a lot of work over the past few years on the topic of vocational discernment, uh, figuring out what any given person feels called to do with their life. Three of my favorite guidelines for discerning vocation are the following. The first is from a writer named Frederick Beekner. He wrote that neither the hair shirt 
nor the soft birth will do. Some of you know the hair shirt from uh, medieval times. People would wear penitents would wear it underneath, and it would continually chafe you, and it would remind you that you should be, you know, penitent and mournful. And so that that he's saying neither the hair shirt, just perpetually beating yourself up, or the soft birth will do. So that's birth like B R T H, not B not birthing uh, a baby, birth like a ship, and that if you put a ship in a soft birth instead of a tight birth, then if a storm comes, it'll bang around and get destroyed. So he's saying, neither the hair shirt nor the soft birth will do for your vocation. The place where you are called to is where your deep gladness meets the world's deep hunger. Where your deep gladness meets the world's deep hunger. The second is from a poem by Robert Frost who writes, My object in living is to unite my avocation with my vocation, my hobby with my work. As my two eyes make one in sight, only where love and need is one, and work is play for mortal stakes. The third is from Howard Thurman, the African-American spiritual leader, who said, don't ask just what the world needs. Ask yourself what makes you come alive and go do that. Because what the world needs is more people who are fully engaged, fully alive. Thank you. There's much wisdom in those pieces of advice. And there's one way um, of understanding them is saying, just monetize your hobby, right? Which is easier than it sounds. Here's one major problem. We need to be honest that our society is not structured to support paying everyone well to do their dream job, at least not currently. Instead, to borrow a term from Karl Marx, the majority of human beings on this planet earn their living through what Marx called alienated labor. Work that is not personally fulfilling, but that must be done anyway to afford hopefully even a basic minimum of food and shelter and other of those sort of bottom rung of Maslow's hierarchy. One example of alienated labor is the immoral and inhumane factory conditions in which many people are forced to work on this planet uh, to supply consumer goods for rich nations, you know, so that we, when we go shopping after 9-11, there's something for us to buy. To give a more first-world example of alienated labor, have any of you seen Mike Judge's 1999 satirical film, Office Space? All right. See a few hands out there. Among many hilarious scenes is when the protagonist, named Peter, meets two consultants who have been hired to make recommendations about layoffs. One of the consultants says, we're trying to get a feel for how people spend their day at work. Would you walk us through a typical day for you? Peter, who's recently had an enlightenment experience of sorts that I cannot go into right now, is shockingly honest with them. He says, well, I generally come in about 15 minutes late. After that, I just sort of space out for about an hour. I just stare at my desk. I mean, it looks like I'm working. But I do that for probably another hour after lunch, too. I'd say in a given week, I do about 15 minutes of real actual work. And one of the points that emerges from that scene is questioning the value of demanding that workers be present in an office eight hours a day for five days a week. Does that 40-hour work week even actually maximize productivity? And then we'll talk about in a second whether productivity should be our only criterion of judgment. And regardless of the so-called 
bottom line of financial profit alone, spending half of one's waking hours in alienated labor does not increase life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, I will invite you to consider. Today, the 40-hour work week has become almost this incontrovertible fact of existence, but historically, the conception of full-time employment has changed radically over time, a realization that can open our imaginations about how we might live into a different, uh, more ethical, more humane, more life-giving future. One of the most helpful books that I've found for beginning to reimagine a better way is titled Free Time, The Forgotten American Dream. It's by Benjamin Honeycutt, who's a history professor at the University of Iowa. From a historical perspective, it can be significant to remember that many people used to commonly spend basically all of their waking hours, sometimes up to 16 hours a day, working. Now, some of us don't have have to try hard to imagine what that's like, because some of us work way too close to that today. However, it's also important to remember that beginning around the early uh, 19th century and continuing for about a full century after that, uh, working hours in America continually decreased. Cut in half, according to most accounts, through the labor movement, which pushed back against the exploitation of employees by employers. And in the 19th century, extrapolating from the successes over the past century of the labor movement at that time, many of the best uh, economists and public intellectuals of that time regularly predicted that before the 20th century ended, a golden age of leisure would arrive. When no one would have to work, get this, more than two hours a day. So some of you have seen the four-hour work week book, right? This is more than two hours a day. For those forced to earn a living through alienated labor, a 10-hour work week. So yeah, you might have to do 10 hours of alienated labor, but that would mean that you would have vastly more time to pursue the American dream of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Instead of returning home from work, too exhausted to do anything but rest enough so that you can get up and drag yourself out of bed to go to work again the next day. But instead of the utopia that our 19th century forebears anticipated us and inheriting, here in the early 21st century, many of us find ourselves in the middle stages of a growing corporate dystopia in which the highest court in our land has declared that corporations are people. And many of us actual people work not a 10-hour work week, but a 10-12-hour work day, building to a 50-hour or a 60-hour or more work week. Some of you may have heard the proverb that enough is as good as a feast. Enough, it may even be better than a feast sometimes, if if about an hour or so after feasting, we discover that. (laughs) And before the 20th century, most Americans assumed that it would be possible for reasonable people to eventually satisfy their needs. I'm going to read that one more time. Before the 20th century, most Americans assumed that it would be possible for reasonable people to satisfy their needs. Sure, some people would still have more than others, but conventional wisdom held that increasing technological advances would soon allow everyone to at least have a basic minimum, and that increased automation by machines, both in the household and in the industrial world, would mean that humans could both work less and have more free time because there would be less work to do. 
Ironically, we know now that technological advances such as smartphones have in many ways moved us rapidly in the exact opposite direction, away from freedom and toward being connected 24-7. There's an additional factor as well that traditionally too much wealth, too much materialism uh, was understood to impede humanity's progress, leading to greed and infinite. In, Greed and envy, luxury, indolence, and selfishness. But perceptions around these traditional vices has shifted, turning them into alleged virtues. So instead of remembering that enough is as good as a feast, increasingly large segments of our culture reflect the ethos of the film Wall Street, in which the main character, Gordon Gecko, proclaims what? Greed is good. Many of the founders of our nation, however, had a much different conception of what they imagined the American dream being that was a lot less of a nightmarish hellscape than greed is good. It was one that involved increasing numbers of Americans having more free time for, again, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Consider, for example, this passage of a letter from John Adams to Abigail, his wife. He wrote, I must study politics. I must study war so that my sons might have the freedom and the liberty to study mathematics and philosophy. And my sons ought to study mathematics and philosophy, geography, uh, natural history, naval architecture, navigation, commerce, and agriculture, that their children, our grandchildren, might have a right to study painting and poetry and music and architecture and statuary and tapestry and porcelain. What else might we do with our free time? Spend time at home with friends and family. Read the newspaper to be an informed electorate. Read books for pleasure. Exercise. Join sports leagues. Spend time in nature. Garden. Visit museums. Practice a musical instrument. Create art. Participate in community theater. Learn a foreign language. Take time for spiritual practices like meditation and yoga. Take lifelong learning courses and so much more is possible for our lives than alienated labor. Rather than the best parts of our day and our energy being spent on alienated labor uh, to fuel the so-called bottom line of profit, the American dream requires a more balanced triple bottom line. Profit is still in there, but it's balanced against people and against planet. Eliminating the exploitation of labor and the extern and externalizing um, the, the effect of business on our planet so that we can actually have a sustainable environment. Along these lines, one popular bumper sticker supporting the labor movement says, from the people who brought you the weekend. It's often forgot about when people talk, you know, criticize unions and things like that. They forget the people who brought you the weekend. And labor activists did help secure a five-day work week, and in some industries, even a six-hour work day. But starting with the Great Depression in the 1930s, the trend of shortening work hours reversed. A new emphasis arose about our perceived need to grow the economy through perpetually increasing consumer demand. So we have to work more to buy more and more stuff, but we don't have any free time to enjoy that stuff, which actually gets boring pretty fast. You know, psychologists tell you you're, you're a whole lot better to spend money on experiences than material possessions that we don't have any free time to enjoy that stuff, much less the higher progress of pursuing mental, spiritual, and community activities instead of materialism, recalling that the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. said that the three greatest threats, the triple threats that hold us back from actually building the beloved community 
in addition to racism and materialism, it's, I mean, racism and militarism is materialism. Valuing luxury and consumer goods more than human beings and the long-term sustainability of life on this planet. Remember as well our opening story about the differing perspectives of the businessmen and the fishermen about what was necessary in order to enjoy leisure. That central question comes up again, how much is enough? If the traditional wisdom is true, that enough is as good as a feast, then might we become increasingly content with less and give ourselves permission to claim free time now, not later? If we're to find a balance between people, planet, and profit, there are important cultural shifts to work toward, like reducing wealth inequality and revitalizing the labor movement. But beginning with ourselves, are there ways that are maybe opening up within you this morning uh, that you might embrace the spirit of summer while there's still a few weeks of warm weather left? Are you taking all the vacation that you're allowed this year? If not, is it, uh, is it too late to schedule some unplugged time away with family and friends? Or what can you go ahead right now, next week, and get on the calendar for next year? What did you love to do for hours on end as a child? What activities would cause you to get lost in the zone for hours passing by with you barely noticing? How might you experiment with reclaiming some variation of those sorts of activities for you and for your family today? The historian Benjamin Huddycutt says it this way in his conclusion to Free Time, The Forgotten American Dream. He says that true, authentic, higher progress, growth spiritually, mentally, emotionally, communally, will be possible once again when more of us freely choose to liberate more of our lives from the economy, making the most basic of consumer choices to forego new spending and luxuries as well as modern illusions about the everlasting need for more wealth and more work. Free people choosing more freedom is our best hope for the future. Free people choosing more freedom is our best choice for the future. Now with all that being said, I'll readily admit that this past week when we have seen assaults on the civil rights of our lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender siblings and when we have seen a related failure of far too many elected officials um, failing to see that health care is a basic human right, this past week has been a horrifying reminder that we live in an age of rising authoritarianism, crass capitalism, and cynical manipulations of the, Democrat, of the democratic process. So for such a time as this, as we seek both individually and collectively to discern how should we as free people choose to spend our time, I'll leave you this morning with two quotes that have been important touchstones for me over the years. The first is from the Trappist monk, Thomas Merton, who wrote that there is a pervasive form of modern violence that the idealist most easily succumbs. Activism and overwork. And that's a form of violence to yourself. The rush and pressure of modern life are a form, perhaps the most common form, of that innate violence. To allow oneself to be carried away by a multitude of conflicting concerns, to surrender to too many demands, to commit oneself to too many projects, to want to help everyone and everything, that is to succumb to violence 
Burton invites us to consider. And he concludes that the frenzy of the activist, the frenzy of that activist trying to work for peace and building a better world, that frenzy actually often ends up neutralizing the work of the activist because it kills the fruit of inner wisdom, which makes that work potentially fruitful. The second quote is from a book called Listening Hearts, Discerning Call in Community. They write, even when a need exists, even when a need exists and we are well qualified to meet it, we are not necessarily called to respond to it. Something may seem logical for us to do, but that doesn't mean we're actually called to do it. Similarly, simply because a task or an undertaking is good to do does not mean that we are called to do that good or that we're called to continue doing it even if we have been. They conclude, to be doing good can be the greatest obstacle to doing something even better. That basic type of discernment, often discernment is seen as the simple discernment between good and bad. But I invite you to consider a much more important and certainly a much more subtle discernment is good from better from best. It's a much trickier and a much more subtle form of discernment that is difficult to do if we're frenzied and stressed and overwork. So in the coming days and weeks, what might you be called to let go of? Often progress is as much a matter of subtraction as addition. What might you be called to let go of because your overwork is putting your health at risk? Are you overriding your central governor too much, leaving you run down, drained, innervated, and with a weakened immune system? What might you be called to let go of that is merely good, that you might have a better chance of bringing your full self, your best self, to that place where you are fully called, where your deep gladness and the world's deep hunger meet? Where love and need as one and work is play for mortal stakes. A way of being and becoming in this world that makes you and those around you fully alive.